There's a search that I used to go on quite often that I don't very much anymore because of the ways that things have changed in my own life. But I used to go on a search in pockets when I'd first put on a pair of pants or a coat. What might I have been searching for in those pockets? Money. And I say I don't do it very often anymore because I hardly ever have cash anymore. So very rarely now do I have one of those moments where I reach my hand into my jeans pocket and there's a $5 bill. I'd forgotten all about it. But that was always a really cool find when that would happen. Um, This passage of scripture that we're in this morning deals with people who are seeking to find something. But it's not really that kind of seeking to find, like seeking to find a treasure. When I think of seeking to find a treasure, I also think about my parents and their skills at seeking to find treasure at thrift stores and yard sales and flea markets. Some of the most valued earthly possessions I have, which, you know, ranking in comparison to Eternal things don't have much value, but some of the things I value most are things that my parents sought and found at a garage sale or a thrift store or flea market. They're good at it. It's that seeking to find something good, but that's not really the seeking to find that's taking place in Daniel chapter 6. It's more like Facebook stalking seeking to find. It's more like the reporter who's after the dirt for a really good story. But this word find shows up eight times in Daniel chapter 6. And it's a really familiar Old Testament story. The story of Daniel in the lion's den. It's one that was taught in Sunday school and in children's church. And even one that maybe people outside of the church might have heard of. It's a very familiar story, but it's actually the story, the premise is the story of these men who are seeking to find something in Daniel's life. And they certainly find some things, but it's not what they go searching to find. If you'll look with me in Daniel chapter 6, we'll read first verses 1 to 5, and I'm reading from the New King James Version this morning. It says, it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom, and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. And the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. But they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful. Nor was there any error or fault found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any charge against this Daniel unless we find it against him concerning the law of his God. Now a little bit of context here. We remember the things that have come before that Daniel now has been serving in a foreign land in kind of a governmental role for decades 
He was captured as a young man, right, and brought with the exiles into Babylon. And this really is an incredible beginning of Daniel chapter 6 because we see that this exile has now continued in a position of great influence through a complete political transition and overhaul. The Medes and Persians took over. Remember when we were in Daniel 5 and the story of Belshazzar and his pride and how the Medes and Persians were outside while he was throwing a party and Daniel tells them that he's been weighed in the balance and found wanting and the Medes and the Persians come in and they ransack the place and they take over Babylon and now Darius is in charge and yet here is this Jewish exile who is one of the top three in his governmental system in the new kingdom that Darius sets up. And not only is he in the top three, but Darius sees something in this probably 80, 85-year-old man at this point. He sees an extraordinary spirit in him that none of the other leaders in his kingdom have, and he decides that he wants to make Daniel his right-hand man. Right-hand man that will serve under him only. And that all of these other government officials that he's put in place will report to Daniel. Now, nothing has changed much in the world that when someone is successful, it often stirs up in others jealousy, envy. And so these men who are also leaders in Darius's kingdom, they're like, guys, it's time to dig up some dirt. We're going to go seeking to find. Because they knew that the intention was that Daniel would be made number two in the land. So they go on a seeking, a searching to find some dirt on this man. Daniel has served again for decades in leadership. There's got to be some corruption there somewhere, something that we can uncover, something that we can find. And so we see in these first five verses, five times this word find comes up. And it's all about their desire to dig up something on Daniel. And yet, This man who has survived these political transitions, who is pointing to the fact that God's kingdom is eternal while the kingdoms of man, they fall, they rise, they fall, they rise. As they begin to dig into his life, they do not find what they expect to find in a successful politician. There's no dirty dealings. There's no conspiracies. There's no betrayal. The first thing that they find is that Daniel has had impeccable integrity in his public life as a leader. There's no fault, no error. They Facebook stalked until they got to the end of his profile. They looked for the dirt. There was nothing to be uncovered. And so as a last resort, they decide, well, the only way that we're going to find fault with Daniel is if we can create a situation where he has to choose between the laws of his God and the laws of the state. 
Daniel's allegiance was well known. If you remember, he made the decision in the small things way back when he was first carried off to Babylon, when it came even down to diet. He's like, no, I will be a a faithful follower of God. And as a Jewish man, that means there are certain things I will not eat. He had resolved from the very beginning, come what may, that God's laws came first. And it had elevated him because God's laws had formed him into a man of character, integrity, trustworthiness. And so these men who are envy of him, they're like, if we can just create a scenario where he has to choose between obeying the laws of God and the laws of the Medes and Persians, then we'll have him. Then we'll have the dirt that we need. And so we see in verses 6 to 9 that these men go to Darius and they bring their proposition to him. And first of all, they show that they do know the political game. (laughs) They are corrupt in their dealings. They start this off with flattery appealing to Darius's pride, and then they use deception. They lie to him. If you look back and read this later today, they tell him that all of the leaders were in agreement about this law they thought that Darius should pass, and Daniel, one of the top three leaders in the kingdom, had not been consulted at all. They bring to him this law that they think he should declare that for 30 days... No one can pray to anyone other than Darius himself. And this appeals maybe to Darius's pride. It appeals to his desire for ultimate allegiance and unity in his newly founded kingdom there in the Babylon that he had taken over. And he gets on board and he makes this law that for 30 days, no one is to pray to anyone or through anyone other than him. And the penalty, if someone breaks this law, is to be thrown in to the lion's den. We look at verses 10 to 11. It says, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went home. And in his upper room, with his windows open toward Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times that day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. Then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. The second thing that they find about Daniel in their search is his unwavering devotion to God in his private life. The first thing he did when he found out about the law being decreed that anybody who prayed to anyone other than Darius would be thrown into the lion's den, the first thing he did was what he always did at that time of day, and that was go home and have his prayer time. There was no hiding. There was no hesitating. This was his holy habit. It wasn't reactionary rebellion. It wasn't, oh, you tell me I can't, so I will. It was faithfulness not flaunting. He didn't go into the public square and hit his knees because he'd been told that he couldn't do it. No, he did what he always had done. His holy habit. 
If we look in Psalm 55, verses 16 to 17, we see what may have been the biblical basis for Daniel's commitment to pray morning, noon, and night. In Psalm 55, verses 16 to 17, it says, As for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me, evening and morning and at noon. I will pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. It says this has been his custom since he was young. And I can imagine this young boy who had faith in the Lord and was taken off as a captive to Babylon. He knew that his only source of deliverance, his only source of saving was the Lord. And the psalm says that I cry to the Lord for him to save me. And I do it morning and I do it noon and I do it night. And so Daniel has made it his habit from his youth that three times a day, He stops and he seeks the Lord for his help and his salvation. And it says that he opens the window and he faces Jerusalem. If we look um, in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 35 and 36, we see the biblical basis for this. Why is he opening the window and facing Jerusalem? This is at the dedication of the temple When Solomon is praying um, before they officially dedicate it, it says, When the heavens are shut up and there is no rain because they have sinned against you, when they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin because you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants, your people Israel, that you may teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land which you have given to your people as an inheritance. Solomon said when the people would rebel against God and suffer as a result, which is exactly why Daniel and his friends had ended up in exile, right? Because of the sin of Israel. That when that happened, if people would be reminded and would face the temple and would pray that God would hear their prayer, the temple has been destroyed. It's in rubble. But Daniel knows that his hope is not in what is visible, it's not in his circumstances, but it's in his God. And he knows that the only way to undo this exile is for God's people to seek him for forgiveness. And so he obeys the scriptures three times a day. He faces the non-existent temple and he calls God to do as his word said. And he seeks his salvation. And he seeks his forgiveness. Daniel experiences that salvation and forgiveness for himself. But I believe his prayers are part of what are paving the way for Cyrus to eventually let the Israelites go back home and rebuild the temple. Daniel doesn't get to go himself, but his prayers get his people there. He does what he always had done. He continues in his holy habit. He continues to put his hope in what he can't see, in the God who can save. Lion's den or no lion's den, law or no law, Daniel is faithful in his private devotion, and he knows from whence to seek his help. And it was a well-placed hope and trust. We know where this story is headed. That while people 
are shutting the mouth of the den of lions in which Daniel finds himself. God will shut the mouths of the lions. Because Daniel trusted in what he couldn't see. And he believed in a God who would answer prayer. If we look, um, we'll summarize verses 12 to 17. When, when the men then come to Darius and they're like, Darius, you made that law. Remember, you made that law. If anybody prays to anyone but you for 30 days, they go in the lion's den, right? You made that law, King Darius. Yes, I made that law. Well, we're going to tell you one of those captives from Israel, Daniel, he's broken your law and he's still praying. We caught him in the act. We caught him dirty handed. We found it. Our incriminating evidence. And it says that, that Darius is grieved over this. Remember, he saw an excellent spirit in Daniel. He was the one who wanted to promote Daniel. He doesn't have an issue with Daniel. In fact, we see as the story moves on, he has great respect, even for Daniel's faith in God. But he'd been lied to, remember? Oh, all of us, all of the satraps, all of the governors, we're all in agreement, King Darius, that we should do this. And so Darius tries all day to find a way to save Daniel. But he's bound by his own law. And he can't do it. You know what I'm so thankful for about the Lord? The scripture teaches us that his law is perfect. We don't even have to ask the question, is God bound by his law or does he have authority over his law? Because there would never be a situation like this for our God because his law is perfect and it's perfectly in line with his character and it is perfect on behalf of the work that he wants to do in the lives of people. But thank God, even though Darius couldn't do anything to save Daniel, his God could. And so the, eventually Darius realizes there's nothing he can do. He's bound. And so they take Daniel and they throw him into the lion's den and it says that a stone is rolled over and it's sealed over the mouth of the den. We'll skip ahead now to verse 18. It says, now the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting and no musicians were brought before him. Also, his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried out with a lamenting voice to Daniel. The king spoke, saying to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths so that they have not hurt me because I was found innocent before him. And also, O king, I have done no wrong before you. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded that they should take Daniel up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no injury whatever was found on him because he believed in his God. The irony of this is incredible. We don't know for sure whether or not Daniel slept 
in the lion's den. I wish we had that detail. But I sort of picture in my holy imagination that he just might have. Just to highlight the contrast between his night and Darius's night. The king in the palace is miserable all night long with anxiety and worry and concern while Daniel rests peacefully in a den full of lions who have been restrained by an angel. When he comes first thing in the morning, it's like as soon as the law would allow, he comes to check on Daniel and he asks him if the God that he continually serves was able to deliver him, and the answer is an absolute yes. The third thing that the accusers find in all of this is that Daniel's living God is able and faithful to save his faithful servants. It's interesting, too, that God's faithfulness here is in response to Daniel's faithfulness. Do you see that? It says that God found him innocent and therefore delivered him. And you see, one of the things that we discover in this passage is that what mattered most was what God found in Daniel. Not what his accusers could find, not what Darius could find, but what God would find. Daniel's name itself means God is my judge. And God searches Daniel's heart and life, and God finds him innocent, and God comes to his rescue. Isn't that awesome? And this living God, it's how Darius addresses the God of Daniel. This living God. This is a name that's used for God often in the Old Testament in contrast to idols that can't speak, that can't hear, that can't act. And Darius is recognizing that Daniel's God is a God who is actually engaged in the lives of his people. And he's a God that actually has power to do something. He's a God who has power to save. He's a God who is worthy of healthy fear and respect. If we look ahead at the proclamation that King Darius makes um, in verse 26 and 27, he says, um, says he makes a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom, men must tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. And steadfast forever, his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed, and his dominion shall endure to the end. He delivers and rescues, and he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. He is the living God. Then in verse 24, we see the final thing that Daniel's accusers find in their search. It says, And the king gave the command, and they brought those men who had accused Daniel. 
and they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, and their wives. And the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces before they ever came to the bottom of the den. They find out that plots against the righteous will ultimately backfire. This is a principle that's promised in Scripture. We see in Proverbs 24, verses 15 to 16, about what happens for the righteous when people plot against them. It says, Do not lie in wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Do not plunder his resting place, for a righteous man may fall seven times and rise again. But the wicked shall fall by calamity. If we look in Proverbs 28, verse 10, it says, Whoever causes the upright to go astray in an evil way, he himself will fall into his own pit, but the blameless will inherit good. They find that the plots against the righteous backfire. So they found that Daniel had integrity in his public life. No error, no fault. They found that he had unwavering devotion to God in his private life, that his hope was in the unseen, beyond the circumstances in front of him. They found that Daniel's living God was able and faithful to save his faithful servants. They found that plots against the righteous will ultimately backfire. But friends, there's something in this text for us to find, to uncover that we might have missed, that they surely didn't see. We find that the story of Daniel is a type. It's a signpost. It's pointing us to a future Jesus who would come. You see, in the same way he was framed out of envy, the religious leaders of the day didn't like the attention and the following that Jesus had, and so they plotted against him, and in the same way they falsely accused him of crime-deserving death. In the same way that Daniel was arrested while in private prayer, Jesus was in agony in the Garden of Gethsemane in private prayer. He left the disciples a ways behind and was seeking the Lord right before his accusers came to arrest him. In the same way that Darius knew that Daniel did not deserve to be thrown into the lion's den and he wanted to try to find a way out of it, Pilate said, I find no fault in this man. But eventually he felt trapped in the same way that Darius did and allowed Christ's crucifixion to take place. In the same way that the den was sealed with a stone, so was the tomb of our Savior. After his agonizing death on the cross. And I can't help but think that Christ was taking on himself on the cross what even Daniel deserved. But because Daniel had sought forgiveness and had then lived a life of integrity by God's grace, the lion's mouths were shut for him, but the bite of the cross was allowed for Christ Jesus. Sealed in the tomb with the stone. And in the same way, he emerged alive. 
but this time it was not the act of an angel. It was God himself willingly dying and then beating death, hell, and the grave because he's still the God who wants to deliver. He's still the God who wants to save. He's still the God in which we can find our hope. And just like God desired to rescue Daniel, he desires to rescue you and me, but he rescues in response to faithfulness. And that's where we got to go, uh-oh. If people went seeking to find dirt in my life, my public life, if they went all the way back in my social media posts, if they were able to bring up recordings of the things that I had spoken against people, if they had the journal entries of the shameful acts of my past, what kind of dirt could they find on me? What about my private life, my private devotion? If they sought to find, what would they find? Would they find someone who has been committed to seek the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or would they find someone who has wandered like a lost sheep away from the Lord? And here is a God of love who wants to come to our rescue, but he rescues in response to faithfulness. And so Jesus came, and he lived a perfectly faithful life in your place. So that God, through your faith and his faithfulness, might come and give you a fresh start and wipe that slate of dirt clean. The posts disappear. The recordings are burned with fire. The journal entries are gone. No more dirt. And then enter the Holy Spirit, who once we've been cleaned up by the blood of Jesus, comes into our lives to empower his faithfulness through us so that we can walk as the faithful people for whom God will faithfully come to the rescue. Daniel points us to the gospel, to the good news. He understood that he had to put his hope and his trust in a God that he couldn't see to save him when it seemed impossible. This morning, if you'll put your hope and trust in him, in the sacrifice of Jesus, in the goodness of his love for you, he will come through for you too. As I thought about this word, find, what the Lord brought to my mind is that Jesus came to find too. And he came to find the dirt, but not so he could condemn it, not so he could accuse it. Scripture says he came to seek and find that which was lost so that you could be found. Not so the dirt could be held against you, but so that you could be restored, so you could be rescued.
so you could be delivered. You see, Scripture also teaches us that we have an enemy, and he's compared to a lion, a ferocious one, who's seeking whom he may devour. His name is Satan, Lucifer the devil. And he loves to dig up our dirt, and he wants to use it to send us to a fiery hell. But if we will put our hope in Jesus, Jesus will shut his mouth and he will not have us. And God will give us his very self and mold us into his faithful people. He will rescue us now. And when we face death, he will rescue us again. He has overcome the grave. And he's made it possible for the grave to be overcome for you as well. The worship team is going to come this morning. We're going to have a time of response. The first question I think that we need to dwell on is what would be found? And it really doesn't matter whether people can find it. It only matters that... God knows it. He's already found it. What could be found in your life? And if it's not faithfulness to God, if it's not integrity, then this morning Jesus wants to find you and save you before those sins find you out. What could be found? If you know the Lord this morning, if you've been walking with him, but you've allowed yourself to accumulate some things in your life that, if you're honest, knowing that Jesus knows it makes you very uncomfortable. You know, like Daniel, that you need to seek forgiveness. You need to find repentance. Then the altar is open for you to come and confess those sins to the Lord. Ask him to wash him away and enable your faithfulness by his Holy Spirit. But if you've never come to a place in your life when you realize that there were things in you that caused you to be worthy of death, there's dirt, there's sin, and you've never asked Jesus to come in and wash that away, today's your day. Scripture says today is the day of salvation. There's nothing magical about an altar, but it's an incredible place to come and humble ourselves to both receive God's correction and to seek his salvation. The God who delivered Daniel wants to deliver you today. He wants to deliver you. Don't hesitate to come and pray this morning. Let's seek him together.